Genesis chapter 21. I'll read verses 1 through and including verse 22. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was an hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad, and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent her away, and she departed, and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him, and lifted up her voice, and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called unto Hagar out of heaven, and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad, where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and dwelt in the wilderness, and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took him, a wife, out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fishol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would open up your word unto us, that we might see the wonderful things that thou hast done to secure a people unto thyself. We pray thee, Lord, that you would open it, open our eyes, that we might behold Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is a, I say this every time, it seems like uh, an interesting portion of Scripture. It's all interesting. Um, I want us to appreciate that um, 
Again, I had our deacon read from um, Galatians this morning where it speaks about how Hagar and Sarah are allegories of the two covenants. I know we've read this a number of times, but we have to keep putting this before us because if we read this section without appreciating the allegorical nature of Scripture, you're just going to walk away with nothing. I mean, you're going to look at this and go, well, this is an interesting portion of history. I wonder why God chose to record it the way he did. I wonder why these lives have developed the way they have developed. Is there really anything I can glean from it other than that God is faithful? Which is a good thing to glean here. I mean, verse 1 and 2 opens up here with the Lord visiting Sarah as he had said. You know, she's setting before us that God made a promise, and he's telling us that God, by golly, he filled it out just like he had said he would. He says it twice, as he had said and as he had spoken. And he goes down through here for the first um, three or or so verses, telling us again and again that Isaac is the son born of these two people, Sarah and Abraham, whom God had promised. So, I mean, if if that's what you get from it, that's a good thing to get from it. God is very faithful. He fulfills all of his promises. None can stay his hand. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. And it has taken Sarah and Abraham a long time to appreciate that. But now with the fulfillment of the the promise, it's certainly a very um, faith-building thing uh, for them. So if you continue down here, you continue to read and you go, well, you know, they circumcise him like God had told them to do back in Genesis 17. So he's faithful to fulfill his part of the covenant, though the circumcision, again, is a token of the covenant. And then Sarah makes this interesting comment that um, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? Well, who besides God? Because God said that she was going to have a child. He said it to Abraham and he, a couple of times, and he said it to her uh, in the presence of Abraham. So God would have said that you would give children suck. But it's interesting that she uses the plural here, and so you think to yourself, I wonder if that's a mistake, because she had only one child, and yet it says she'll give children plural suck. So clearly there's something very interesting there. Then they wean the child, and um, they have a feast, and then there's a domestic quarrel where um, Sarah gets upset. She'd already treated Sarah, uh, she, Sarah had already treated Hagar poorly when uh, Hagar had left, but the angel of God said, go back. It wasn't yet time for her to depart. Now it's time because God says, yeah, go ahead, throw her out. And that seems kind of harsh that you would put um, out your bondservant and her child, which is also Abraham's child. And I want to remind us here that that child is 17 years old. It uses the word lad, but um, Isaac is, uh, excuse me, uh, Ishmael is 17 years old. There's 14 years difference between the two children, between Ishmael and Isaac, and it was three years before he was weaned. You can find that in Second Chronicles 31:16. So he's 17 years old. So you continue down here, and you, you go, well, that's that's interesting. But uh, what do I take from that? Um, it doesn't seem like Sarah is being very charitable, but God is clearly teaching us something here, which, again, our deacon read for us in the book of uh, Galatians. Um, so Abraham sends him off with a loaf of bread and a bottle of water, and then they go out in the desert, and because he's 17 years old, while well, he might have the strength of a 17-year-old, you know they have no endurance and no sustenance, so the kid is weak, and uh, rather than... Rather than her putting him under a tree, she puts him under a shrub. That's interesting that the Lord would tell us that. Um, they're right next to a well, can't see it, can't find it, but God shows it to him, to her. She gives him a bottle to drink, and then off he goes, and he grows uh, up, and she takes a wife for him out of Egypt. And then uh, the king of the Philistines comes to him and says, oh, God is with thee, and all that thou doest. Okay, That's, those are interesting things to hear, but what does that mean to us? What can we learn from that about Christ? Clearly, there's something more in here than just this historical um, information. And as I said, 
the Lord sets before us uh, the fact that these two women are allegorical. Their lives are allegories and represent two different covenants. So we need to look for that. And so I'm going to share with us here that um, Sarah is going to represent a couple of different things, and it's going to shift. Sarah is going to represent the new covenant. She's also going to represent um, all of the church in places, and she's going to represent Christ himself in this section here, Christ himself and also the new covenant. Um, Abraham's going to represent um, God the Father in places, and um, Hagar is going to represent the old covenant, and her son Ishmael is going to represent the works of the flesh. So there's going to bounce around here, and so by God's grace, and that's why I prayed he would open it unto us, we can see this. When you look at things in scriptures, you can't say this one object always represents the same things. It can represent different things, even in a, in a very short course here, which we are going to see that, particularly with respect um, to Sarah, the new covenant, and she's going to represent Christ. And we're going to go look at some of those verses here. But again, as we walk through this here, we can appreciate that the Lord visited Sarah just like he said he was going to do. It was a promise made. It was a promise fulfilled. And we should appreciate that he is sovereign over everything. And he works out everything over, out over the counsel of his own will. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, we appreciate that it says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born. And now was the time to be born for Isaac. God had promised this birth of this child 25 years prior to it. And so Abraham and Sarah had to wait 25 years for the fulfillment of this promise. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it talks about that. It says, for when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. And so Isaac represents Christ in the context in which I'm sharing. It was in the fullness of time was come, God sent forth Isaac. In the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son Jesus, who was made of a woman made under the law. And so this um, Isaac here was clearly made, he was born contrary to nature. Sarah was past childbearing years. Scripture says that it had ceased uh, according to the manner of women with her. The Bible tells us that Abraham himself had, his body was as good as dead. So this um, birth of this child was clearly contrary to nature, as was Christ, who was, of course, born of a virgin. The Holy Ghost came upon uh, Mary, and she gave birth. Um, so um, contrary to nature, so interesting is the birth of Isaac, the coming of Isaac, that even the king of the Philistines recognizes it as such. And we read in verse 22 where he and, a, and his chief captain come unto Abraham and say, God is with thee and all that thou doest. They can appreciate that God is with him and they can see that. Recall that Abraham had lived with him for a time, denied Sarah, and then God uh, revealed that that would be sin for him to take Sarah unto himself and had stopped up all the wounds of, the, of his wife and the servants in his house. So even they recognized it, that this was um, an extraordinary uh, birth. Now, continuing with this idea of Isaac representing Christ and setting that before us here in the context of his birth, um, this is the seed that was promised. And this seed, promise of the seed, goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 with respect to what the Lord said to um, Eve and Satan that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the, um, of the serpent. So this is the promised seed. This was very much an anticipated child. Um, 
certainly no more than the birth of Christ. But I don't, I don't recall anybody else in Scripture, the birth of which was anticipated um, as much as was this one, with the exception of the birth of Christ, which was anticipated all the way from Genesis chapter 3 up until when the Lord actually came. Of Isaac, it is said in Genesis chapter 22 that he is the only begotten son of Isaac, and he is beloved. It is his beloved son. It is the son of his old age, evocative of Christ being the only begotten son of the ancient of days, which is God, and he is the beloved son. Interestingly enough, that the word love first appears in the Bible in this context with respect to a father's love for his son. That's in Genesis chapter 22, which we'll get there. And so, again, Isaac here represents very much the, um, the birth of Christ. He re- represents a, a type of Christ here. And of Isaac, it says that when Abraham offered him up in Hebrews chapter 11, it sets before us this idea that he was offered up and yet received back in a figure from the dead. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and that he had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son. Clearly setting the parallel here to us with respect to Christ. Of whom it was said, in that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. So the Lord is telling us here in the book of Hebrews that Isaac is a figure or type of Christ and that it is, he is um, a promised seed just as Christ himself was the promised seed. Galatians 3.16 shares that with us about um, Christ being the seed. Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. So we see this, um, Isaac is the promised seed. He's a figure of Christ here. He's made of a woman. He's made under the law, meaning that he was um, circumcised according to the commandment of God. And we see here that um, he was manifest, Christ was manifest, we know, to destroy the works of the devil. Now you're going to see a fun parallel here, or an interesting parallel here with respect to what Isaac does. Abraham is going to dig wells in the context that he represents God, and yet um, Abimelech, whom I mentioned once before is a type of Satan, is going to stop those wells up. And uh, further down in Genesis chapter 21, we're going to see that he um, is, Abraham reproves Abimelech because of a well of a water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech is going to say, I wot not who had done this thing. Um, in other words, he's going to feign ignorance about what has taken place with respect to stopping up of the well um, that Abraham had dug. The well belongs to uh, Abraham. Now, in Genesis chapter 26, you'll see in verse 15 that um, Abimelech and the Philistines have stopped. After Abraham's death, they go around and they stop up all the wells. They fill them up, and they, they plug them up. And then in verse 18, you'll read that they are reopened by Isaac. Isaac is going to go back and destroy the works of Abimelech, meaning he's going to go up and open up all of those wells again. And so it is with Christ. He was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John 3, 8. For this purpose, the Son of Man was manifest that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, The devil, of course, kills people, and the Lord has overcome death. He took on the form of flesh that through death he would destroy death. 
Um, but one of the works of the devil is to shut down churches and attack churches, attack places where people might drink of Christ and be fed of Christ. And so he goes about and destroying all of the churches, which in what I'm sharing with you here that Abraham had started, Abimelech plugs up, and then um, Isaac comes in then reopens all of those wells um, again. So here, in this context, he represents a type of Christ. And so he goes about opening up those wells, which we'll get to um, much later. Um, as we continue here, I want us to appreciate also that um, with respect to the seed here, because I want us to see how we are intrinsically tied to Isaac. In Romans chapter 9, um, the Lord shares with us this reality that the spiritual seed is what is in view here with respect to Isaac and with respect to uh, Jacob, that it's not the seed of the flesh that's going to profit, but it is only the seed of faith. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it says, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. This is where I want you to pick up. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, meaning all of the people that are born from Jacob, um, whose name was changed to Israel. Those are not the Israelites. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham, meaning because they were all um, born from Abraham, that they're all related to him, are they the children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And so we, like Isaac, are part of the seed that are called through Isaac, or through Christ, rather, which come from Isaac. Verse 8, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. So you see the parallel there where Isaac was the child of promise, Ishmael's the child of the flesh, and he's telling us here that the children are the flesh are not the children of Abraham, but only the children of the promise, as are we. We are counted, we are the children of the promise, and so we are counted with that seed also. Um, so again, we see these uh, wonderful parallels, and therefore promises that are made to uh, them apply to us as well. Now in verse 3 here, we see that Isaac, Abraham calls the name of this child of promise, he calls his name Isaac, which means we shall laugh, we shall laugh. Now, I want us to appreciate that Abraham is not the one who named the child, but it was really God who named the child. God knows all of his children by name. In John chapter 10, of course, he speaks about how he is the good shepherd, and he knows all of his sheep. In verse 3, he says, He calleth his own sheep by name and leadeth them out. He leads them in and out, of course, of the sheepfold, Christ being the good shepherd. He has called everyone personally, and he's called them by their name. John the Baptist was named by, um, by the Lord. Of course, Jesus was named by the Lord, the angel Gabriel, telling them what to call, their, uh, call these children which would be born. God here telling Abraham the name that he would call his child Isaac. And we know that in scriptures, the apostle um, Paul, formerly was Saul, and Peter, uh, son of Barjona, was renamed uh, Cephas. Um, so the Lord knows all of us personally from be, um, before the world was. We have been near and dear to him, and he uh, calls us by name in the fullness of time. He calls us when, he is, um, when the time is appointed for us to become born, that is to say, born again. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2 says, there is a time to be born and a time to die. In other words, a time to be born from above, a time to be born again, and a time to die to self. 
And that, of course, has been manifest in our life and is manifest in the life of the saints in the scripture that is set forth before us here. But in an interesting sort of way, it's interesting that the child would be named Isaac, which means we shall laugh because that is what took place when Abraham was told by God that he would have a son. And what did he do? He fell on his face on his face, and he laughed at the announcement. He said, shall he that is 100 years old, you know, have a child? She that is 90, shall she bear um, a son? So he laughed. So obviously an expression of, of doubt or of some kind, or this is a remarkable thing that God is doing. And Sarah laughed when she heard um, that she was going to bear a child. Her laugh was in disbelief, so much so that the Lord confronted her about her <laughs> laugh. And, of course, she denied it because she was uh, afraid. So here we see that there's laughter of joy. And it says we, meaning we shall laugh. It's plural. And who shall laugh? Well, we shall all laugh. All of the elect shall laugh for joy that this thing has taken place here. I say all of the elect shall laugh because not everyone's going to laugh. Hagar is not laughing, as you can see here in verse um, 9 and 10. Hagar's not going to laugh, and neither is Ishmael going to laugh because the birth of Isaac is problematic to them. And I would hope you could appreciate that. That is the firstborn of Abraham, though he's born of the flesh. You are heir of Abraham. But when this one comes, when Isaac comes, he is going to be heir of all things. And this, we'll get to that in a minute. The scripture says that. So Sarah's joy is manifest at the circumcision of the uh, child. And she laughs and she says, who shall have said that Sarah shall give children suck? Plural. Oh, that's a very interesting thing. Again, she would, you would think she would be just speaking of the one child, Isaac, but the one child in this uh, context represents, of course, Christ, who represents the plurality uh, of the church, and therefore many people are involved because we are all one in Christ. And that's our deacon mentioned that from uh, Isaiah chapter 28 this morning, that we are all the church, we are stones in the church uh, of, um, of Christ. And so, whereas... Sarah represents the new covenant of grace. She represents the Jerusalem, which is from above, our deacon read in Galatians chapter 4. And Galatians chapter 4, verse 26 says that she is, quote, the mother of us all. Verse 26, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So she represents all of the saints. She is the mother of of all of the saints, so when it says that she shall give children suck as the mother of us all, then she would have to represent Christ because we would take our sustenance um, from him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24, it speaks about this heavenly Jerusalem. Um, and this is something we've talked about in the past. People have simply got to take their eyes off of the Jerusalem that's over in the land of what they call the land of Palestine in national Israel today. They have to stop looking at that as though there's something, um, some benefit from supporting them or being preoccupied with them and be looking heavenward, be looking to the Jerusalem which is above. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 makes this very clear. He says, but ye are come unto Mount Zion, not the one that's on the earth, not the physical one. He says, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That's where we have been brought to, the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church 
of the firstborn, which is Christ, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Think about who he says lives in this heavenly Jerusalem, this heavenly Mount Zion. Think of the description of the people that live there. Obviously, he's not talking about earthly Jerusalem. He's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem. The spirits of just men made perfect, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Whereas we are all one in Christ in John 17, the Lord prays that about that and puts that truth before us just as he is united with the Father and we are in Christ, we are in the Father, we are all united, we are all one. The heavenly Jerusalem is populated by the saints which are in Christ who is one with God. That is where we have come to. And so in the context of what's set before us in Galatians chapter 4, the Lord is sharing with us that Sarah represents the heavenly Jerusalem who is the mother of us all. Um, In verse um, 28 of Galatians 4, back where we were, it says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So as Sarah is giving suck to Isaac, the child, singular of promise, we, the children of promise, are in an allegorical sense, in a um, parabolic sense, we are receiving... um, Milk from the Lord. Verse 31 So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but the children of the free. So he's sharing with us that we are all the children of Sarah, in so much as she represents Christ in this context, and also represents the the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, which, of course, we know that Christ is the covenant. Now, the Lord sets this truth uh, for us in a very wonderful way in Isaiah chapter 66. He sets us all out for us so we can appreciate that. It is Christ himself from whom we receive suck and sustenance. And Isaiah 66, picking up in verse 10, it says, Rejoice ye, who would the ye be? That would be you and me. That's the church. That's the saints. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Only the saints love the heavenly Jerusalem. Rejoice for joy with her. That's what Sarah is saying here. She's laughing and she's saying, who, you know, about us laughing with her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck. Now he's talking about a child, of course, taking sustenance from his mother. Then shall ye suck. Ye shall be born upon her sides and dandled upon her knees. Everybody that's had a child knows what it means to pick up the kid and hold him against your hip and carry him around the house and nurse as is required, or to sit the child on your knee and bounce them on your knee. And that's the language that is set before here about born upon her sides and dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, now he's going to flip here and tell you that he's talking about himself. God, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. So now he's, he's saying, I'm really talking about myself here. This is the way I, God, this is the way I, through Christ, um, Nurture you, give sustenance unto you, give comfort unto you, and help you appreciate it that you are indeed loved. And when you see this, your heart shall rejoice, 
And so the Lord says this before us here, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants. So the Lord is helping us with this allegorical appreciation of Sarah giving suck to children. Now, as saints in the New Testament, the Lord sets this truth before us about uh, desiring first milk, and we see that again in um, Genesis chapter 21, that that's first what Isaac consumes. First he has milk, then he's weaned, and then he's going to be given solid food, and that's a, a time of celebration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Lord is criticizing the church at Corinth, um, speaking about milk and meat, and he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as to babes in Christ. Verse 2, For I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither are ye able. Um, neither now are ye able. So new Christians can only take in milk. They have to be fed milk. And when you um, set the table before them, if they were to take meat from the table, then they would choke on it, just like as a child would choke on it. So the Lord is using that analogy here about first you feed people the simple things of the scripture, the simple spiritual truths, because those are the things that they can take in and that they can digest. But not so with... Um, Older people. Older people must have, must have meat. Um, in um, Hebrews chapter 5, the Lord lays a criticism against people that have been in the Word for a period of time, and he's saying that they're not growing in the Word. They're not um, growing in the Word because they are not um, partaking of the Word. In verse um, 12 here of Hebrews 5, he says, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, in other words, you've been Christians a long time, you ought to be teaching the scriptures. He says, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. These people have been going to church for a long period of time, but they're not getting into the word of God. They're not studying the word of God, and so they are not advancing in their appreciation, knowledge, and understanding of Christ. Um, and as a result of that, all they can do is take milk. For everyone that useth milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those that by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So they are not exercising themselves in, term, in terms of discerning what is right and wrong, what is good, what is evil, what is spiritual, what is non-spiritual. Um, what is of the flesh, what is of the spirit, they are not staying in the Bible and they are not reading to, so that they might grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all have to do that. If you put down the Bible, I don't care to what level you had been uh, brought to, to what level the Lord had brought you to, if you put down the Bible and stop studying it, you're going to lose all that knowledge and you'll go back to being a babe where you will need milk again. Um, I have experienced that in my own life. And um, I know it's, I can speak from an experiential perspective that it is true, and the Lord says it is true, so I also know it is true. So um, as we continue here, um, in First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. So we have to start with milk in a spiritual sense, just as people have to start with milk, taking that from their 
uh, their mother, which of course we know is the most nutritious thing a child could ever eat, far more nutritious than, um, than formula, because it contains natural antibodies and all of the vitamins and minerals that would come from the mother. There could be nothing better a child should have than their mother's milk, and there's nothing better for us to have than to go directly to the Lord, not through a commentary, but to go directly to the Lord and be fed directly from him. Um, so as we continue, we get down to verse 8 here of Genesis 21, and we see that Isaac is weaned. Again, as we should all be weaned, we should move from milk to meat, as the Lord has set before us here. And then it's after we are weaned, or after Isaac is weaned, you'll notice that the problems start. After he's weaned, the problems start. And so it is for all Christians that Satan is not particularly concerned with babes in Christ. And so lots of churches out there, these people can never never move from uh, milk to meat because the meat is not taught from the pulpit. So although Satan is concerned with all Christians, he just doesn't have the energy to go after all of them, but he will go after the mature Christian. He will persecute the mature Christian, and he will do what he can to go after and destroy the mature church, ones that are doctrinally sound, ones that are theologically sound, uh, the ones that are mature, those are the churches that he will spend his energy going after to persecute and endeavoring to shut down. Um, Galatians helps us to appreciate, again, this um, interesting relationship between Ishmael and Isaac. In verse 29 of Galatians 4, it says that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit even so it is now, is what that verse says. Even so it is now. So when the Lord had uh, the Apostle Paul write that, he's telling us that, yet just as there was persecution back here in Genesis 21 between the flesh and the spirit, between the child of, of works and the child of grace, there is persecution now. Also, to this day, there is persecution now, as we, uh, as we have seen. In First Thessalonians, um, the Lord writes to uh, the church in Thessalonica and shares with them about this persecution that they are suffering there. And he draws the parallel. He says, just as, they, as you are suffering at the hands of your fellow citizens, so did the Jews suffer there. But what I appreciate here that is brought forth is not only are they persecuting you personally because they don't want to hear what you have to say, but they don't want anybody to hear what you have to say. In verse 13 of First Thessalonians chapter 2, it says... For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. In other words, he's sharing with them that you didn't make a intellectual assent to understanding what this is, but you received it directly from God. You appreciate what was um, the gospel that was shared to you, and you've taken it to heart by the uh, grace of God. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus of their, and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Contrary not just to their own people, but they are contrary to all men. Forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. What he's sharing with us here is, as I said, not only do we not want you to preach to us, but we don't want you to preach to anybody else either. And you can see this if you watch some of the um, 
protests on YouTube, you'll see people trying to do engage in street preaching. And rather than just walk away if you don't want to hear the message, what do they do? They get bullhorns and they blast it into the face of the Christians, endeavoring to shut them up and drown out what message they might have for anybody else within earshot might hear. So not only do they not want to hear it, but they don't want anybody else to hear the gospel as well. So you should clearly appreciate that that is obviously from Satan endeavoring to shut down the gospel, that it would go nowhere. We saw that during the um, pandemic that God um, permitted um, Satan to shut down churches. You know, he's God's sovereign, sovereign over all things, but what did they do? They came after the church. Liquor stores could stay open. Casinos could stay open. But churches, no. We have to shut those down. So, again, we don't want not only you to receive the word, but we don't want anybody to receive it um, either. So what's the solution here between us and them, between uh, the people of God and the people of flesh? There's only one solution, and that's verse 10. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. They've got to go. Again, in Ecclesiastes, there is a time, there is a uh, season and a time for every purpose under heaven. In verse 7, a time to rend. There's a time to split, there's a time to separate, and that time has come in Genesis chapter 21 here for Ishmael and Isaac. The time is to split, the time is to put her out. As I mentioned before, that when um, Ishmael was conceived in uh, the womb of uh, Hagar by Abraham, that Sarah, she, um, Hagar, treated uh, or lifted herself up in her heart, was proud and despised Sarah, and so Sarah started treating her hardly, so she left, and God said, no, go back. Now is not the time. We're not done with you yet in an allegorical context. It's not time for you to leave, but now it is time for her to leave. Sarah makes it very plain here, as we do, as does the Lord later in the book of Galatians. He says, Isaac, or excuse me, Ishmael shall not be heir with my son. Ishmael shall not be heir with Isaac. Isaac is a son of promise, as I said, as indeed we all are. And Isaac is going to inherit everything. Now, we've been told that um, Abraham is very wealthy. He left, uh, he was very rich in silver or in gold and in silver and in cattle. Um, when Abraham dies, we know that by then he's had children via the concubine Keturah. He's had a child, Ishmael, via Hagar, and he's had Isaac. And in Genesis 25, he, we, the Lord shares with us here in verse 5, and Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac. He gave all that he had to Isaac. Verse 6, but unto the sons of the concubines, plural, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son. Didn't just send them away, but sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived eastward into the east country. So Isaac is the heir. Isaac is going to inherit everything from Abraham. And this, of course, the Lord sets before us in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Speaking of Christ, God has appointed him heir of all things. Christ will inherit all things. Now, what does that mean to you and me? Well, if Christ inherits all things, Romans 8, 17 says that we too, as the children of God, in other words, from Sarah, uh, from Isaac, we are heirs of God. We too are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, who is the Son of God. So everything that Isaac might inherit, at least in an allegorical context, we will inherit from God. 
And if Abraham was wealthy, being heir of the new heavens and the new earth, we um, call that from um, Romans chapter 4, surely there's nobody richer than God. <laughs> and we inherit everything that Christ inherits. All that we have, we have um, in Christ um, from God. So the promises to Isaac are promises to us as children of the promise. Ishmael, who is the works of the flesh, inherits nothing. He must go. Scripture tells us that no flesh shall glory in the presence of God. No flesh shall glory in God's presence. It has to go. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And he, of course, is a product between Abraham and Hagar. He's a product between Abraham um, moving in the flesh to help God fulfill his promise. And that will never glory in God's presence, so the child must go. Now, this, the scripture tells us, is very grievous to Abraham. That's verse 11. It says, and the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Everybody has trouble letting go of the works of the flesh. We have trouble letting go of our flesh. There's things that we do, that we, that we love the things that we've done. And God says, no, if they're not wrought in me, then they have to go. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So the Lord separates us from our works, and only the works that would stand before God would be the works that he has worked in us. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should uh, walk in them. So all of our works of flesh, we know that all righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and they have to go. So it's difficult for us to let go of the works of the flesh, it's difficult for us to walk by faith and not by sight. It's difficult for us to not trust in ourselves and the things that we do. And so the Lord says that we have to die to ourselves, take up his cross and follow him. And we know that crucifixion is a slow death. It's hard for us to do that. But we simply must die to ourselves, let go of our works of our flesh. And in verse 12, God reaffirms what Sarah has said and says, they have to go. Hagar in this context, as you'll recall, represents the law. Again, that's Galatians chapter 4. She represents the law. Now, the law was needful for a time. It has a purpose. Romans 7, 7 says that I had not known sin, but by the law. Certainly, Abraham knew what sin was when he lay with Hagar. He committed fornication and adultery. And so that reminder was ever with him for 14 or now 17 years. Um, and so the Lord is going to remove that from him. And so, but now that Isaac has come, the law must go. Now that the child of promise has come, now that faith has come, the law must go. Every person is under one of two dispensations. You are either under the dispensation of law or you are under the dispensation of grace. You are either under the dispensation of works or you are under the dispensation of faith. In Galatians chapter 3, Verse 23, the Lord helps us to appreciate this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 23 through 25, I will read that. But before faith came, think of faith and Christ as their synonyms. Before Christ came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Now, verse 24 contains three words in italics, which change the entire meaning of this verse. I'm not going to read those. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ, 
that we might be justified by faith. They put in italics to bring us to. The law does not bring you to Christ. The law brings you to the throne of judgment. It does not bring you to Christ. If it did, everybody would be brought to Christ, but it doesn't. You are simply under the law until faith comes, until Christ comes to you. So, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, after that Christ has come, we are no longer under the under a schoolmaster, for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ. So we see this allegorical principle worked out in the lives of Isaac and Ishmael, whereas once Isaac comes, Abraham and his whole household there is no longer under the law. The law must go. So the law goes, and then he can, now he's strictly under grace. And so uh, the law goes, we are under grace, and so too it is with us. We should never look to the law as a means of justification for anything that we do. We only look to the law to see the righteousness of Christ therein because he fulfilled all of the um, precepts of the law. So it helps teach us about Christ, but we are not under the law. We are under grace. So the law has to go, and we're going to see that they're going to go, and they're going to live out. Um, Hagar and Ishmael are going to go out and live in the wilderness. They are always out there somewhere but never to come back into the camp of Abraham again. In verse 12, we can appreciate that God reassures Abraham. This is hard on his heart that he would have to put out Ishmael, his son. So God reaffirms his promise to Abraham. Yes, I'll take care of Ishmael. He shall be a mighty nation. Um, Verse 13 reassures him that his son will live and prosper. He certainly couldn't become a mighty nation if he died out in the wilderness. Verse 14, we see that he is sent away with bread and a bottle of water. Um, And then in verse 15, we see that the water is spent. And the child is left under a shrub, and we would contrast that with being left under a tree. Remember, Abraham had was under a tree when he met um, the Lord in Genesis 18, the tree representing the cross. Here he's simply underneath a a shrub. It is under the cross that we would all find sustenance and rest in Christ, but not so for them. They are spiritually blind. Right near where they are is a well, and they cannot see the well. Um, God will nevertheless sustain them for Abraham's sake. You'll notice that um, when um, the woman is crying out, who does the Lord hear in verse 17? It says, God heard the voice of the lad. And that's what the name Ishmael means, God shall hear. God hears the voice of the lad because he is a son of Abraham. And it is for Abraham's sake that um, Ishmael is going to be blessed in a material context, that he will indeed be a mighty nation. So he says that twice in here, that he hears the voice of the lad. In verse 17, he says it twice. God had heard the voice of the lad. And so he gets, um, the Lord comes and he, in voice only, and he reassures um, Hagar that, the son will, that her son will be okay. Now, which he'll do for Abraham's sake. Now, she drinks the, she fills up a bottle at the well, and the boy drinks from the bottle. He doesn't drink from the well itself. And so we see an interesting contrast between here and what we read in John chapter 4, where the woman of Samaria comes to the well with a water pot, and after speaking with Christ, who is the well from which living water is drawn. And so, when, as I mentioned earlier, when you think of these wells in the Scriptures, think about them as a place where the gospel can be uh, received and heard, and you can receive sustenance. But they don't actually drink directly from the well. They, they fill the pot, the uh, bottle with water and take that bottle with them, contrasting with the woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, who leaves her water pot at the well, 
obviously having drunk from Christ himself. And then the woman goes to town and she brings other people um, to that well, to Christ actually. Verse 20, we know that he's an archer. And I want us to think about that in contrast of God's people. All throughout scripture, God's people are um, portrayed, often portrayed as shepherds. They're ever caring for the flock, but not, um, not Ishmael. He's, he's an archer. We have been told in verse 11 of Genesis 16 that uh, he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man's hand and every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And indeed, that is certainly true to this day. They all live there, and they are all fighting constantly, and there will never be peace in the Mideast. And so if you think that blessed are the peacemakers, if you think as a Christian you're going to have some extraordinary wisdom and go there and broker peace, you are mistaken because God has said here there will never be peace there. As a Christian, when you broker peace, you don't broker peace between men directly. You broker peace between man and God because we are ambassadors for Christ, asking that men would be reconciled to God through Christ. So you broker peace in a vertical sense. And if two people are brokered peace with God, then they will be at peace with each other. Um, So... Um, always will be um, wars in the Middle East. The problem will never be solved until Christ comes. In verse 21, we see that Hagar takes a wife from Egypt for him. And so she takes a wife from the world, and the Lord tells us that if any man is in love with the world, then the love of God is not in him. So we see another parallel in Scripture, just all the way from, uh, from Adam, where there are two nations in Adam, that you have Cain and you have Abel, you have the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. In Abraham, you have Ishmael versus Isaac, non-elect versus elect. In Isaac, same thing, you'll have Esau and you'll have Jacob. So the world consists of people that are in one of two camps. You are either in Christ or you are not in Christ. You are either in the kingdom of likeness or you are in the kingdom of darkness. So in summary, as we look at this wonderful section of Genesis chapter 21, we appreciate, I hope, the spiritual allegorical truths that are set before us here. It's not just an interesting portion of history uh, that the God has chosen to share from us in the book of Genesis, but there are spiritual and allegorical and gospel truths that set Christ before us that set the grace of God before us, that that make a distinction between the elect of God and those that are not elect. And uh, though one might be blessed materially, and uh, the other, however, receives spiritual blessings, which are eternal blessings, which I pray that we have all uh, are partakers of. And with that, I will say amen.